thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. actually, for being here tonight. If there was one Bible study of the whole series to attend, it would be this one. And if there was one thing that you're going to get out of it, it would be what I'm going to tell you tonight. Now, your blessedness is tempered by the fact that you have to hear me. But I hope that in the end you're going to find it worthwhile. What I intend on doing tonight is building upon what we've talked about last week. I'm going to go through 4, 5, and 6 at kite level. I'm going to ask you not to worry too, too much about the details. Why do the four creatures have a face of a man and an ox and a lion and an eagle? What about the crowns? What about all these different things going on? Don't worry about the details. We will hit those later on. We'll come back and go at sea level and look at all those details step by step. But before we do so, we've got to be able to have a good grasp about what's going on in those four chapters, in those three chapters, in such a way that there is continuity between chapters one, two, three that we've already seen and these ones. I've already told you that what you see unfolding before your eyes is the Mass. Chapters 1 to 3 being the Liturgy of the Word, and what you see here is the preparation for the Liturgy of the Eucharist. But if I were to stop right there, there would be something missing, because we as Catholics don't fully comprehend what the Mass is all about. We go to Mass, we follow the rubric, we stand, we bow, we kneel, we pray, we open our hands, we do all these wonderful things, but I doubt that we really understand what we're doing. Worse, I doubt that we understand the impact of what we're doing on each other and on the world. And what I'm about to show you tonight is the power that God placed in our hands. Catholics have fallen into the trap of pessimism. Evangelicals 
have this concept that the rapture is coming. Christ is going to come in the clouds and He's going to rapture us, meaning He's going to you know, beam us up in the clouds and then He's going to destroy the wicked and then reign for a thousand years. That's their understanding. In order for the rapture to take place, things have got to get worse and worse and worse. If that's the case, you're not going to try to save a sinking ship, are you? You're going to let the things go worse and worse and worse. Therefore, embedded into their view of the world is a pessimistic approach. Things will get worse and worse and worse. And that has spilled over into the church. Many Catholics share that approach. They see wars and earthquakes and the Middle East, North Korea, global warming, and people getting fat, and kids becoming obese, and all the worry that the news throw at them, and they conclude that things will have to get worse. And then they go to Mass. And they take all that pessimism with them into Mass. And therefore they're completely disconnected from the reality of the liturgy. It'd be like somebody going, you know, flip-flopping between a hot shower and a cold shower. Constantly. That's not what Catholicism is all about. That is not what Christ came to announce. Christ came and what did He say? I have come to bring what? The good news. The good news. Hmm? The good news. Not CNN news. Not the bad news. Things were bad back then as they were now. No different. You had the Roman Empire. You said, word against Caesar, you end up crucified. And what did he say? Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Look at Catholics. That's the power of this book. That's the reality that Revelation is revealing to us. That's what I want to show you tonight. At the same time, I'd like to show you that what I'm talking about is not, nothing new. I'm not inventing that stuff. I'm not making it up. It is part and parcel of what Catholics ought to know and believe. The first reference I will give you is in the Declaration of the Second Vatican Council on the Constitution of the Church, Part 8. As a homework, I would like you to read part 8 of the Declaration on the Constitution of the Church from the Second Vatican Council. And you will see that the way the Council depicts the Church is in absolute glorious terms. Um, and I will later, either today or, or uh, the next, next time around, quote from 
the catechism. Let's read through and try to understand the purpose of those three chapters, 4, 5, and 6. So please follow with me in Revelation, starting with chapter 4. After this, I looked, and lo, in heaven an open door, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up hither, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and lo, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who was sat there appeared like jasper and cornelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clad in white garments, with golden crowns upon their heads. From the throne issue flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder, and before the throne burn seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there is, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. I would propose to you right now that what you see is not a vision, it's not the beatific vision. It isn't God as we will see Him once we are in heaven. What you see here is what St. Paul speaks of when he says, we will be in the cloud, which evangelicals take to mean we're going to be raptured some 2,000 to 3,000 feet up there. I hope they're going to be dressed warmly because it's going to be quite cold. Being in the cloud is being in the spirit. The cloud is always a sign of the spirit. And being in the cloud means that we are in that space that joins heaven and earth. It is the space where heaven and earth touch. This is no science fiction. This is the reality of the incarnation. Christ was true God, true man. Heaven and earth touch in Christ. He joins the two. What you see is God the Father enthroned. He's sitting on the throne. Never mind right now the rainbow, the carnelian, the jasper. We're going to go through all those details. Never mind that right now. He's enthroned. And before him are thrones, 24 thrones, with elders sitting on them wearing crowns of gold. Those elders, the word elder in Greek is presbyteroi, from which we have the root for priest. Those are priests, specifically bishop, bishops. There are 24 of them seated before the throne of God. And they are wearing a crown. That is significant. Why is that significant that they're wearing a crown? Because in the Old Covenant... Priests wore white, the keton, as it was called in Hebrew, the white garment of the priest. But they did not wear a crown. Who wore the crown? The kings. The line of Judah had the crown. The line of Levi had the priesthood. Only once did the two meet when Solomon dedicated the temple. But that was about it. That's, that's about it. Here you have priests, king. That is the priesthood of the new covenant. 
So what you see here is the liturgy of the new covenant enfolding before your eyes. Remember what I said about this is a, a place where heaven and earth meet. Those guys are not necessarily in heaven. I'm going to explain myself. Those 24 elders with their crown are not necessarily 24 souls of departed bishops in heaven. And I'll explain to you why later. I'm going to go back and tell you why I'm saying what I'm saying. But right now, bear with me, I'm painting a picture. Those are actual priests or bishops celebrating the liturgy on earth. Yet we are seeing it from the vantage point of heaven. In other words, it would be as if God touches our eyes and show us what happens during the liturgy from heaven. Do you understand? If God were to open our eyes why the liturgy is being celebrated, we would see this. You understand? That's what we would see. Because that is the reality of the liturgy. The number 24 doesn't imply the numeric 24, as in simply 24. 24 comes from First Chronicle chapters, chapter 24. The, the, the number with the chapter is coincidental. But in that chapter, you see the names of the 24 orders of priests that were to officiate at the temple. There were 24 groups of priests that officiated at the temple all year round. We'll go back and read this, but it's in chapter, in the, in the first Chronicles chapter 24 and then 25. You see that there is also 24 courses so there were 24 courses of priests and 24 courses of singers that officiated at the temple throughout the whole year. So therefore, the number 24 represents what? The totality of the priesthood of the new covenant. Each one of them is seated on a throne and each one of them is facing the throne of God the Father. One of the problems we have today is that the architecture of our church is not in conformity to the temple in heaven. The priest or the bishop is facing the people instead of facing the tabernacle, which is the throne of God. The closest I've seen is actually at St. Peter's uh, Cathedral, where the seat of the bishop is outside the Holy of Holies on the side and points in sort of kind of in between towards the people and towards the, 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 uh, the, uh, the tabernacle. That's the closest I've seen. But the proper liturgy ought to be a priest or a bishop facing this way, not facing us. All right? And the structure of the church architecturally ought to help us understand this vision because this is the design according to which every church should be designed. The architecture of the church is not for us to make up or invent. 
The church is the reality of heaven and earth, therefore it must reflect that. Those 24 elders are therefore celebrating the liturgy. They may not even be aware of each other. I don't want you to think that they are sitting there and they're all aware that, oh, there's 24 of us. Look who's next to me. I didn't know you were here. You understand? Don't take that vision and then turn it into something too um, rigid. Understand what it represents. It is representing the reality of mass across the globe, across all countries, across all ages. For mass is one. We here on earth are joining with the church triumphant every time we're celebrating the liturgy. And it is one eternal liturgy because, as St. Paul says in Hebrews, Christ died once for all. That's a passage that many of our brother, Protestant brothers have a hard time with. If Christ died once for all, why you, why you Catholic keep on celebrating the liturgy called a sacrifice? He died once. How come you keep on doing this over and over again? Because they understand the liturgy on earth as divorced, as separate from what goes in heaven. They do not grasp what the liturgy is. It is nothing more than the joining of us on earth with heaven. The liturgy on earth is God's way of making that one sacrifice available to us today so that He can change our lives. That's it. It's the power of that one sacrifice that extends universally across time and space. But I don't blame them for not understanding it because probably they haven't met many Catholics who were able to explain it to them. The sea of crystal, the sea of glass like crystal. I will have to come back to this and and go over it extensively. But what I will say right now to you is that the sea is always a reference to the Gentiles. We've seen that when we've gone through the symbolism of the Old Covenant. If you were not with us, there's a whole series that we've done before on the symbolism of the Old Covenant. You can either talk to uh, Michael when he's here or to Fatty uh, for the CDs and then they'll be able to provide you with those CDs. The sea is always a representation of the Gentiles. Always. The land is the promised land. The sea is the Gentile world. What you see, what you have here around the throne is a sea. But the interesting thing about it is that it's a sea of glass, like crystal. What does that mean? The nature of the sea has been changed. It has been transformed. From something that is opaque, through which you can't see, to something that is transparent. It has undergone a transformation. Why is that? Because, as we will see from Ephesians... The mystery of Christ, hidden from all ages, is that Jews and Gentiles are now partakers in the church. 
the sea is transformed because now the Gentiles have been invited and have joined into the covenant. They have become sons and daughters of God. And that's why when you look at old cathedrals, you will see the way they build them. You have the tabernacle in the back. You have an altar. And what do you have under the altar? What material do they use? What you will notice is that they will use marble. They'll use marble, white, and blue. That harkens back to the temple that Herod built. When Herod built the temple, the outer court was made out of marble. And Herod wanted to inlay it with gold. But the sage of the time told him not to do so. And they said that was perfect. This is how it should be. Because they saw the sea surrounding the Holy of Holies. The Gentiles surrounding the people of God. Okay? That's how it ought to be in our churches. Architecture is theology for the eyes. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within, and day and night they never cease to sing. Who are these creatures, and why do they have these, this odd shape, this strange shape? These creatures are angels. They're angelic beings. Now, you all know that angels are spirits. And as such, they have no body. They don't have a body. We, when we die and we go to heaven, we will be bodiless for a time. But we don't turn into angels. I hope none of you is under that thought that we're going to become angels. You know, wings are going to sprout. No, you won't have any wings. You don't turn into angels. You remain a human being. And at the end of time, after at the, at the second judgment, we will get our body back. All right? But angels don't have a body. So what, what's up with this faces of a lion and an ox and an eagle and a human and six wings and eyes all over the place? Remember, one of the principles that I've established for this study is what I call irreducible complexity. And by this I mean that there is any explanation we give must preserve the complexity of the image used and cannot substitute for it. So if I say, St. John meant by these images this, you should ask me, well, why didn't he say that? If what I say is a lot simpler and understandable, then the question is, why didn't St. John say that? Why do you make it so complicated? Angels, those angels are four, and they are around the altar. There are four of them. Four is the number of what? If you remember from, from our studies of universal? No, universe, the world, the whole world. Why? The four corners, right? And why do we speak of the four corners? It isn't because the Jews... Or the ancients thought the earth was flat. And that's a pure invention. They, didn't, they never, never thought that the earth was flat. They spoke of the four, four corners because to them, the earth is an altar. And an altar has four corners. 
So the four corners came to mean the whole world. So now you know that four is the whole world, the whole universe. Therefore, those four angels represent the angelic realm responsible for ordering this universe. Science can tell us how things work. Science can't tell us why they work this way. Science can tell us there is black matter out there to account for the lack of density of the matter that we can see. It can't tell us why there is black matter. Angels, the, there is an angelic order responsible for making sure that this universe works. Now, I don't want you to think that behind planet Earth, you got a bunch of, you have angels running behind the planet and pushing it. Angels don't work that way. They have control over matter. And it's a question of the will. Their power resides in their will. What you see here is an image that makes it, makes their power visible to us, reveals to us the role they play. The number of wings is an indication of their speed. I have already told you when we went through the angels, there's a whole series on angels that I also recommend, because if you don't understand what angels are, you really have to study that. We, if we're studying the principle of geometry, and I gave you the five or six axioms that build on linear you know, geometry, on, on, on planar geometry, you would sit down and then painstakingly start to derive all the possible truth out of those five principles. You know, uh, two lines intersect in one point, two parallels never intersect, across two points you can get only one line, all these principles of Pythagorean geometry. But if you were to give those same principles to an angel, as soon as the angel sees these principles, the angel has derived all possible truth in that very instant. That's the power that's the, rash, that's the rational power they have. Angels are rational beings, but they're not, um, they're not intellectual. We use our intellect to be able to derive all the, the, the knowledge we need to. Angels work almost intuitively. And, by the way, computers are our way of praising angels. Computers are the closest thing we've invented to the way angels can think. That's what they are. I'm thinking in terms of the power of processing. All right? In, in a way, the, the computer is able to process. Um, for instance, if you have a password, um, most of you probably have a computer and most of you have a password. And if I were to run some of my... Uh, programs against your password, it will take probably less than two seconds to crack every password there is in this room, unless you've been taught to build really strong passwords. Even if you're using Chaldean or Russian or Bulgarian, doesn't matter. That's how fast computers can be. All right. That is a an homage to angels, because angels are much faster than that. Those wings represent their speed. The eyes all around represent knowledge. 
they are all seeing. All that is in the universe is under their control. They see all through the power that God gave them. The faces, that of a lion, represent power. The ox represent strength or fortitude. The man represent the intellect or intelligence or wisdom. And the eagle represents swiftness. So what you see here is effectively a symbolic representation of the angelic order responsible for running the universe. All right? That's what those are. And that's why they cannot be reduced by any explanation I can give you. Because no matter how I explain it to you, I cannot substitute this image with an explanation. Because an explanation will always fall short of the reality of the nature, of the angelic nature. Words cannot convey what an angel is. They're beyond our language. So therefore we have to resort to those complex and bizarre images to give us a foretaste or an idea or a perception of the nature and function and power of those beings. I want to point out to you that they are surrounding the throne and the elders. They're on the outside. That's very important. Why? Because the world is outside the, the sanctuary. The world is outside the church. You understand? It's the same ordering. The world is outside the church. Yet the world, all of it, all of it, through the ministry of the angels, is participant in the liturgy. And the world derives its order. The world derives its order from the liturgy. What gives order to the world and what keeps the world in order is the liturgy. That's what's revolutionary for Catholics if they could only believe in it. But we are too tamed by our naturalistic approach, by what science tells us, tell us, by what we see outside, that we can't open our eyes, the eyes of faith, and see the reality of the liturgy for what it is. I'm hoping that through this study, you will take that to heart and realize what you're doing when you are participant in the liturgy. Now, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who, who was and is and who was and is and is to come. So that's the, um, that's the Sanctus, which is, which comes from the angels. It's the angels and therefore the world, the natural world that prays God the Father through the word of those angels. Now, I want you to understand one thing. It isn't that the angels are praising God and then going about doing what they're doing, keeping the world in order. They praise God by keeping the world in order. Do you understand? Their activity is, is conjoined, is linked, is united to their praise. When they say holy, 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 they're actually doing what they have to do to keep the world in order. Their work is praise to God. Their work gives glory to God. 
There's no separation between singing the praise of God and the work they have to do to keep the world in order. As they are right there surrounding the altar and the throne and the 24 elders, they're at the same time keeping the world in order. And that is what we are called to do. Through our work outside, we sanctify the world. And we're going to see how this works. Who was and is and is to come is a variation. It's a Hebraic variation on the name of the Lord. I am that I am. And as you know, a Jew would never say the name of the Lord. I am that I am. So instead of saying, glory, you know, holy, holy, holy to the one, to the one who, who, who says I am that I am, they'll say, holy, holy, holy to the one who is, I am, who was, was in the past, who is, and is to come. I am. That's what they're saying. Of course, yes, absolutely. It, it makes it part. This is the introduction, the anaphora before the, litur- the, the liturgy of the Eucharist. So as I said, the first three chapters are really about the readings and the homily. And this is now the introduction into the liturgy of the Eucharist. What I'm trying to tell you is that this book is not written to explain to us the liturgy. This book is written to tell us what's going on in heaven. And the liturgy on earth is patterned after the liturgy in heaven. You understand? St. John is not trying to say, okay, I'm going to play this trick on the Catholics just to make sure they're awake. I'm going to take the liturgy and instead of explaining explaining to them in simple terms, I'm going to give them this very complicated picture just to make them think, keep them busy. That's not how it works. The liturgy is patterned after the vision in heaven. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, Worthy art thou, Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and by thy will they existed and were created. This is called the liturgy of creation. Notice that the elders are responding to the prayer of the angels, the angels responsible for the world, by praising the Lord for what He has created, for the whole created order. And effectively, in the Eucharistic prayer, we do, the priest or the bishop does exactly the same thing. I pointed that out to you last time, that when the bishop enters, starts the Eucharistic prayer, he takes off, he uncovers his head. He's laying his crown before the Lord. That comes straight out from here. It used to be that they would actually prostrate themselves. Now they stand. But it's the same principle. No different. He is joining with that liturgy in heaven. He is one of those elders seated on the throne. With the host of angels surrounding. That's what you have in, he- in Mass every time you go to Mass. So next time, as soon as you hear the, 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 the priest, when you see the priest move from the... Um, when you see the priest moves towards the, the altar 
and begins the liturgy of the Eucharist, think of that. Imagine what I'm just describing to you. Because that's the reality. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, we've read that. Now, I want to point out to you, worthy art thou, O Lord our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. And power. We Catholics these days, because we're so politically correct, we've got no problem to give God glory and honor. We're good. It's the power business that we have a problem with. Giving God the power is where we have a problem. Because we're not anymore the militant church. We are the somnolent church, the sleeping church, the retreating church, the church afraid, the church uncertain, the church in doubt. We don't dare conquer the world anymore. We don't dare claim the world for Christ. We don't dare think that we will by the power of the cross, convert Islam. We don't dare think that by the power of the cross, China will be converted. India will be converted. We don't think this way anymore. But that's the reality that goes on in heaven and on earth. So if you wonder sometimes, why is it that you have a sense that your lives are disconnected from Mass? Or why Mass may not make sense? Or Mass has become this kind of individual experience where it's you and the Lord Jesus Christ? That's why. Because intellectually, we have not been properly catechized to understand what goes on in the liturgy. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. We will... As I said, go back and look at this business of the scroll closer. The seven seals, the scroll written inside and out. Oh, by the way, uh, there was a gal here once that asked me, because I pointed out that the, the, um, tablet of the, the tablet on which the Lord has written the Ten Commandments were written on both sides. And she had talked to her priest and he said no, or there was some sort of an argument. I think you guys, she, I think she's Chaldean. You may know who I'm talking about. Please point out to her to read um, Exodus chapter 32, verse 15. That's the reference. Um, so, the scroll written on both sides, yeah, it reminds us of the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments, the tablets were written on both sides. But the reference I'm going to give you right now, and I, I'll give you that as also as an assignment for next time, is to go back and read Daniel. Read Daniel chapter 7 through 9. Because what we see here is effectively the realization of the promise or the prophecy that was made while Daniel was in Babylon around the year 580 B.C. So while Daniel was in Babylon, he had a vision 
And in a vision, he saw a throne, and one like a son of man coming by the throne. And I'll show you how there is a correspondence between the elements we see here and the elements in Daniel. Also, we'll have to draw on Ezekiel and on Isaiah and Jeremiah. But we'll get, we'll get to that later. For now, just read Daniel for your own edification. The point I want to make right now is that we see God the Father holding a scroll with seven seals. And an angel proclaims and asks this question, Who is worthy to open? Who is worthy to open that scroll to break the seals? And he and, and then Saint John adds, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Who do you think he has in mind when he says in heaven, on earth, or under the earth? Who he's got in mind? Does he have angels in mind? No. Who does he have in mind? People. People. Humans. Alright? Not one human was found worthy to open this scroll. Now why is that important? Because this takes us all the way back to Genesis. When God created the world and He created Adam, what did He do? What was God's plan for Adam? What did He want Adam to be? <coughs> Adam was to be the king reigning on earth. That's who Adam was supposed to be. A king priest or a priestly king. But through disobedience, Adam lost that which was given him. The gift that was given, he lost. And all the line of Adam, not one is found worthy to open the scroll. On the other hand, it cannot be an angel who's going to open that scroll. Because this is not about the angelic realm. It's not about the angelic kingdom. It's about men. So no angel can open that scroll and God is not going to open that scroll because His justice must be satisfied. Do you understand? Otherwise you might be puzzled. Well, wait a minute. Why is God holding a scroll that He can open and He's not opening it? What up with God? He can open the scroll. Why is He not opening it? Because that scroll, whatever it contains... Whatever it contains, we don't know what it contains right now, but the content of that scroll obviously is very important for the rest of the book. Meaning what? I told you, this is the introduction to the Eucharistic prayer, right? And it looks right now that without that scroll being open, the Eucharist can't proceed. What does that suggest? It suggests that if that scroll is not open, Mass can't proceed. You understand why he weeps? He weeps because our salvation is on the line. We need someone to open that scroll. That has to be a human. A human must be able to, to open that scroll and no one else. But no one in heaven 
on earth or under the earth is fallen. No one here doesn't apply to all the angels. Of course, you have to understand it in context. No one doesn't mean no one in a mathematical sense. Because that would be absurdity. Because God, of course, is perfectly worthy and able to open the scroll. Right? No one means none among the son of Adam was found worthy to open the scroll. Because none among the son of Adam who are under the old covenant can open the scroll. They are under a curse. They can't do that. Yet we need a man to do that. Do you understand? The humanity of Jesus Christ is paramount to our salvation. Christ did not save us through His divinity only. We need to understand. He didn't save us just by being God. He could have done that. But that's not what He did. He saved us through His humanity. What, when Christ was crucified, it wasn't His divinity that suffered. It was His body. His human body that suffered. It is through His humanity that He saved us. Why? Because a man must be able to open that scroll. And it must be one who is worthy. That is why it was important, it was essential for God to be made man, so by uniting our nature to His, He could redeem us. And that explains where John is weeping. It's a tragedy. And it's a sign of the hardness of our heart that we do not weep for the sins of the world. We are so hard-hearted. Our heart is so hard that we do not weep for the sins of the world. Most of us don't think of ourselves this way. Most of us think of ourselves as being good people. Maybe even canonizable saints. But we don't weep for the sins of the world because of the hardness of our heart. We don't love enough. We're quick to judge. But we don't love enough. And one of the elders told me, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It is, of course, the Lord. Why is there reference to the lion of the tribe of Judah? Why the lion? That takes us all the way back to Exodus, I mean Genesis chapter 49, the last chapter in the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 49 quickly and see why this is so. In the last chapter, Jacob Israel is imparting blessings upon his 12 children. It's his final blessing for all of them. His firstborn son is Reuben. And normally Reuben should be the one to receive the double portion. Because he's the firstborn. He's the one to whom the primary blessing should go. But hear carefully what Israel says. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength. So far, so good. Preeminent in pride. Preeminent in pride. And preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. 
because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, you went up to my couch. So he passes the blessing from the first. It's not really a blessing, is it now? Right? He passes this firstborn. He goes to the second, Levi and Simeon, second and third in order. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of, of violence are their swords. O my soul, come not into their counsel. O my spirit, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they slay men, and in their wantonness they hamstring oxen. Doesn't sound like a blessing, does it now? Then he comes to the fourth, Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the wine, and his ass's coal to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until he... Until it comes to the one to whom it belongs. Of course, the Jews, the rabbis, saw that as a messianic prophecy pointing first to David. But then as the Davidic kingdom fell, it pointed to the Messiah, Christ. Right? And you, the fathers saw in this an allegory of Christ's passion because he washes his garments in the wine. Right? That is why we speak of the lion of the tribe of Judah because he holds the scepter. He is the king. So that points to his kingship. He's the king. All right? Now, remember what I said a little bit earlier about those, those elders. They are dressed in white, signifying their priesthood, and they're wearing crowns, signifying the fact that they're kings. Here, the lion of the tribe of Judah appears on the scene, and that title is, of course, a kingly title. It's a messianic title. But how does he appear on that scene? What does he look like? Let's go back to Revelation. And between, verse 6 and chapter 5, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes. He appears as a lamb standing as though it has been slain. What does that point to? He is what? The victim. That what sets Christ apart from the elders. Like him, they're priests. Like him, they're kings. Because they share with his kingdom. But the one thing that sets him apart is the victim. The eternal victim. And it is through his sacrifice that we are saved. That's why he appears as a lamb. There's irony here because the elder says, Behold, the lion. You'd expect to see a lion. 
Instead you see what? A lamb. A killer lamb. Okay, jog your head a little bit and try to go with the pictures. It's funny. It's ironic. The lion is coming. Man. Why? Why? Hmm, bringing peace. Yes, I think that's a good... That's a good sense, but he's not only bringing peace. We will see that he's bringing the sword, right? He is a lion under the appearance of a lamb. Huh. Sort of like God under the appearance of bread and wine. Huh. You see the correspondence between what happens here and what happens up there? Even, even those, that's why I'm telling you, this is not the beatific vision. They're not beholding God as He truly is in His nature. That's what the beatific vision is. Because the lion has come, what do they see? All of them. A lamb. So the eyes of faith are demanding to see in this lamb the lion. Right? No different. When the priest holds that host, the eyes of faith are demanding to see in that host the lion. So in heaven, the irony or the paradox is that the lion is appearing under the appearance of a lamb. On the altar, the lion is appearing on the appearance as of bread and wine. No different. You understand? Seven horns. What is the meaning of a horn? If you go back to the symbolism that we've done, the whole study on horn, on, 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 on symbolism. A horn is a, is a sign of what? Power. Power. Right? It comes from the Le- Leviathan, which is the... Uh, the uh, uh, I always confuse those two. It's not the hippo. It's the... Uh, yeah, the rhino. Thanks. The rhino. That's where it comes from. The first time they saw a rhino, the ancients would see a rhino, and you know the rhino looks like it has scales. It's like a, like a tank. Actually, it doesn't have scales. It's a, it's, it's, it doesn't have scales. It looks like it, but it doesn't, right? And it has a horn. And so that's where they got the idea or image of power. Because if that thing charges, you better get out of the way. You know, having said that, as a little trivia, do you know uh, what animal, what animal, uh, wild animal kills the greatest number of people? Huh? No, not the rhino. The hippo. Hippo, yeah. Because people are gullible. They see a hippo in the water, they go, oh, look, this is so cute and cuddly. And they don't realize that they're between the mother and the baby. And what the hippo will do then, they will charge the boat, they will um, capsize the boat, and then they will tread on people to make sure they're dead. Yeah. More people die from hippo than from crocodiles or any other beast. I don't know if there's any relationship between Revelation and this, but I thought you might want to know in case you you find yourself looking at a hippo up close. Be it as it may, that's where 
those seven horns. Seven is the number of the covenant. So his power is a covenantal power. It is a power of blessing and a power of curses. He has the ultimate power. That lamb. The lamb has the ultimate power. Okay? The seven eyes, again, uh, the, the eye is a symbol of wisdom. The all-seeing eye of God is a symbol of wisdom. So he has the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He sees all. Nothing is hidden from him. He is God. He is man. He's the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so when they see him, what do they do? And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou... Well, let's wait on what they're saying in the song. I want to stop right there. They see the Lamb, what do they do? They prostrate themselves, both the angelic order and the priestly order prostrate themselves before the Lamb. Therefore, what is He? He is God. That's a sign of worship. They worshiped God the Father earlier on in that liturgy of creation, and now they're worshiping God the Son in that liturgy of redemption. You understand? He is God. So anytime you see Jehovah's Witness, try to take them to that passage. And let them grapple with it. But I'll warn you right away that in their latest translation of Scripture, they have um, made use of quite of um, you know quite a bit of liberty in their translation, so that they fix the text to meet their understanding. You know that to the Jehovah Witness, Christ is not God. They'll tell you, yeah, we believe in God and, and Jesus, and but Jesus is not God; He's just an angel. Those guys are not Christian. You understand that? Yes. Okay. Good. Now, they fall before him, and now they're holding lyres, and they're singing a new song. Understand that every time a new song is sung, it is in response to an act of salvation on God's part. The first time that a new song is sung is in the book of Exodus. Moses sung a new song when God saved his people. David sang new songs every time God saved him. So a song is being sang right now because the Lamb has saved us. You understand? And then what are they holding? Bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Saints here does not mean canonized saints. You understand? Saints mean what St. Paul means when he says saints. Kadosh, Kaddish, set apart. The people that are set apart for the Lord. That's you and me. Alright? So saint here has, is an overloaded term. So in on one hand it means those folks who are up in heaven, but more generally it means the, the, the people of God. Okay? That's how St. Paul uses it. Peace to all the saints. Well, he's not giving peace to those in heaven. He's giving peace to all those on earth. So what are they holding in their hands? Bowls of incense, which are the prayers of who? Well, who? who, who? Us. 
Okay, I want to make sure you realize one thing. This is not history. I'm not describing to you something that happened 2,000 years ago. That's not what I'm doing right now. Do you understand? I'm describing something that happens every time you go to Mass. Okay? Huh. You see where there's incense? We don't just use incense because it smells nice. That's not what we're doing. Therefore, every time you see the priest sensing the altar, what must you do? Offer up your prayers. Because they're being taken up to heaven. Do you understand? Let me tell you something though. If during that week, you haven't suffered for Christ, your prayer is worthless. Because that's what allows your prayer to ascend, is your suffering. We're going to see that a little bit later. If you haven't sacrificed for Christ, if you haven't done something out of love of Christ, you got nothing to offer. You wonder why sometimes you get those Catholics, I call them car wash Catholics. You know? And often I fit in that mold, me personally. Because, you know, you just go to the car wash, you get your car in neutral mode, you went to this thing, it just goes to the eight phases, you know, code of this, code of that, right? And then it, it goes, you, you know, you go out on the other side and the car is clean. So here we go, we go to church, you know. A code of reading and a code of homily and a code of uh, Eucharist and we receive the Eucharist and then, and then we just go out. Oh, we're clean. We're done out. That's what I call car wash Catholics. There's complete disconnect between what they live in that hour, Mass, and the rest of their week. Complete disconnect. They don't prepare for Mass. They don't think as their week a preparation so that when they get to Mass and there's incense, they can think, my garden angel, take the, the, the offerings of this week and join it to the liturgy. Your hands are not empty this week. Because there was this one person who cut me off on the highway and I blessed him. Because this person at work annoyed me and I smiled. Because while I'm driving, my wife gave me directions, and I followed them. It's not easy. Don't laugh. Because my five-year-old wanted me to read her a story when I wanted to do something else, and I read her the story. Because I was, I was hot, and I didn't complain. Because I was cold, and I didn't complain. Because I didn't like the food that I was served at home. And I said, thank you. I'm doing all these things so when I go to Mass, my dear garden angel, you don't go up there, your hands empty. I'm doing all these things because I love you and because I love the Lord. And I know they're very little things. Just like incense. It's a very little thing. That's how Mass ought to be lived. 
And that's why there are so many Catholics who can go to Mass every single day of their lives and end up in hell. Now, what song did they sing? I want you to hear carefully. By the way, next week, I'm planning on going through the Gospel and show you that all that stuff I'm talking to you about today is not peculiar to the book of Revelation. It's all over the Gospel. Couched differently, but it's the same message. I'm doing this so I can firm up this notion that what you see here is the power of the liturgy. And that's what Christ came to do. Now, listen to that song and we'll finish with this tonight. Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals. First thing first in that song, they don't say, Lord Jesus, please give me Lamborghini and please make my stock double in, 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 uh, in value and they give praise to God. First thing, worthy art thou. They recognize the reality of the worthiness of Christ. They affirm it. They're giving Him glory and honor. Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God. That's the reality of the crucifixion. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed us. And has made them men, notice, men, all men, that men here means the generic. Men and women. Not just the guys. The guys and the gals. Everybody. Alright? The whole race of men. And has made them a kingdom. A kingdom. You hear the word? You are part of a kingdom. You have a king. You're part of that kingdom. A kingdom and priests. Kingdom and priests. Man and woman. That's what we call the general priesthood of us all. First Peter. The first letter of Peter. Read the first letter of Peter. Affirming the same thing. That's the general priesthood of all of us. It's separate from the liturgical priesthood. The sacerdotal priesthood. Right? What does it mean? What can, what can a priest do? Sacrifice. Offer sacrifice. What does that mean? It means we are able to offer sacrifice. We have that power to offer sacrifice, which was taken away from all the men in the Old Covenant and given only to the tribe of Levi for the disobedience. Now we have a power to offer sacrifice. What do you think the sacrifice that we should be offering Ourselves. Yeah. Okay. To our God, and they shall reign, they shall reign in heaven. Right? Is that what the text is saying? Those of you who are following with me? Where are they going to reign? On earth. Who are they? You. Each and every one of you. Now, how many of you those of you who feel the raining right now, I'd like you to raise your hand. Okay. Here's the crisis of the faith. Right now. You see it. This is it. None of you think that you're raining. 
They're affirming that. They are reign on earth. You think that he, they mean the when the world will come to an end, then we will reign? You think this is what they have in mind? You think they're talking about the end of the world? No. The context does not allow us to see that. And I would recommend one more time, go back and read the seven letters. And you will see how Christ affirms the same thing. You will reign with me. And he told his apostles, you will sit on thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. You'll reign with me. Now. Now. Huh. What are Catholics? Every Catholic is what? Every Catholic is a king and a queen. Every Catholic is a king and a queen. And they are supposed to reign. But then we look around and we see, well, wait a minute. Look at the world. Look at those who are powerful out there. How, how can you tell us we're reigning? We're not reigning. You see, in Timothy, in the letter that, that uh, in the second letter of, to Timothy, St. Paul explains to Timothy that the way you reign is through your suffering. That's how you reign. Paradoxical. Very strange. This is not how the world reigns. But through your suffering, you reign. Okay. What is the reign of every Catholic? What is its purpose? To glorify God. Meaning what? To bring about the obedience of faith to all nations. To bring about all nations to Christ. That is the reign of Christ. That is the reign of Christ. Christ expects us to bring His kingdom to the world. But instead, we have allowed the world to conquer us in the way we think, in the way we talk, in the way we behave. We are retreating. Some of us congratulate themselves on being Orthodox Catholics. They're holding on to the faith. They're doing what they need to do, and they're happy. They're waiting for the three days of darkness or some other cataclysm to hit. That's a defeatist proposition. That's not what this is talking about. That's not what this is talking about. Did you know that uh, the, the Catholics in China, the Catholics, the Chinese, those who are persecuted, you know those who are persecuted in China? You know that they're learning Arabic? kind of funny, isn't it? They're learning Arabic. What do you think they're learning Arabic for? You know why? Because they want to go and die a martyr in the Muslim world to bring the faith of Christ. They reign. We, from the Middle East, we look at the situation over there, and all we can do is complain and whine and fall in despair. And be afraid. We don't want to reign. That's the reality of it. Because we don't want the cross. That's not what we want. We don't want the cross. We want to be cozy. We want to be comfortable. We don't want to take up the fight. It's not for us. It's not for me. 
We're like Moses. Moses, I want to send you to my people. You're going to go tell them. Me, I stutter. I can't do that. I'm old. Go find someone else. That's what Moses said. He doesn't want to reign either. I can't talk. You go find someone else. He's arguing with God. That's what we do too. Me, I can't do anything. We don't want to reign. My recommendation for you tonight as you go home is to take some time to think about how you go through Mass. You know how they say when you really want to lose weight, you must stand naked in front of the mirror and don't try to kind of hold your stomach in and then look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're not going to be able to anyhow. But you're going to just have to look at yourself and then say, this is what I look like, and therefore, in order for me to lose weight, these are the things I need to do. And be very realistic about it. Faith is no different. Mass is no different. You've got to have to take stock of how you live Mass. Is Mass boring? If it is, you've got to admit it. Lord, I'm bored of Mass. I don't understand what Mass is for. I don't know why I have to go to Mass. I encourage you to enter into a heart-to-heart, honest conversation with the Lord over Mass. And then ask Him to open your eyes to the beauty of Mass. And then, roll up your sleeves, pick up a book. If you have a youth group, spend some time studying Mass. Really studying it. Those of you who are not part of a youth group, pick up some book, find something, read, learn more about the structure of the Mass. Why is the structure the way it is? Get to understand the liturgy. And the more you do that, do that, the more God will reward you. And you will get to reign with Him. Don't be lazy. Because heaven doesn't admit lazy bums. Roll up your sleeves. And God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.